0: And they basically open and remove part of the bony projections on your individual vertebrae to make room for these titanium rods that stretch from, like I said, the base of my neck to about my waist. This is the Real Food Real People podcast.
1: She's faced major health problems and still battles chronic pain but continues to keep supporting her family's century-old dairy farm. This week, I talk with Eastern Washington dairy farmer Jessica Newhouse about her journey from her childhood in what she calls the concrete suburbs of Portland, Oregon, to farming with her husband and his family near Yakima. Her passion for what she does and her determination to overcome huge obstacles is so inspiring. And I'm sure that you'll enjoy our conversation as we continue to get to know the real people behind our food. I'm Dylan Honkoop. I grew up on a family farm in Northwest Washington, and I'm on a mission to discover and share the real life stories of our region's farming community here on the Real Food, Real People podcast. (laughs)
0: So I started 2019 pregnant, and all of a sudden in February, I started like getting nerve pain in my legs, and pretty soon it got to the point where I wasn't able to pick up the toe, my toes on my right foot, and it started progressing, and I started getting more weakness in my right leg, and then it started going to my left leg, and my surgeon, <laughs> everybody just has a surgeon that they talk to, right? He was... I have an outstanding issue of scoliosis, and so mm. when I was pregnant, he was saying, "Well, it could be nerve entrapment from your bones just carrying the weight of your pregnancy." He's like, "So we might need to do this surgery that we've been contemplating while you're pregnant." Yikes! Yeah, and he, Scary. I was like, "Okay, that's not just me; that's my unborn child, like going through surgery." And and then things started progressing really fast, and so they—I um, don't know how much detail you want to go into, but. Whatever's Um, good for you. Yeah, no. And so he wanted me to come in for an emergency MRI, so I had a a two-and-a-half-hour MRI, which that zaps so much energy out of you just Mm. trying to lay still. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so at that that time, with things the way they were progressing, they thought it was Guillain-Barre, which is an autoimmune disorder. So they moved away from my spine and Mm. started suspecting Guillain-Barre, which apparently affects pregnant women a lot. And so that's an autoimmune condition where your nerve cells biochemically have a similar signature to of like the common cold, and then it starts attacking your nerve cells. So you progressively start losing nerve function in your body. We were literally in the ER in Pasco, and they said to us, they said, well, don't go anywhere. We're going to see where we can transfer you. And I was like, I'm going home. Like, I came here for an MRI. And then they... <laughs> And I'm pregnant and I'm freaking out. No Meanwhile, kidding. my husband's eating Panda Express, just like, we're going to take it as it comes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, okay. Um, but anyway, they thought it was Guillain-Barre. And so they discharged us from Pasco and said, here's your transfer paperwork. They hadn't told us Guillain-Barre yet. But they said, you need to drive up to pa- up to Spokane right now to Sacred Heart. If you start feeling like you can't breathe, pull over and call 911. <laughs>
1: You're kidding me. And you're like, uh, why aren't you hauling me in an ambulance?
0: Well, they wanted to fly me to Seattle, but insurance didn't want to cover it. And we didn't have flight insurance. That would be $40,000. So we were like, screw it. We'll drive. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there going, this is a house, like an episode of Dr. House, like the show from, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was like. I can't feel my legs like that's a, such a common thing on that show and I'm like what is happening to me <laughs> so we get to Spokane and I was in a room seeing a physician like I couldn't move anything past lower than my hips and so they're like we need to get you to ICU and start this treatment meanwhile I'm 16 weeks pregnant and they're saying if you start feeling it in your thumbs Um, and then in your fingers, the next thing to go is going to be your ability to breathe. So then we would need to intubate you. So I'm trying to process all of this information in less than 24 hours. So then we go down to ICU and they're like prepping the treatments and everything. Treatment only takes like a week, maybe two, but because it progresses so fast and they don't know how to the, to what extent it will progress to, they, they were like, you could be in the hospital nine months just relearning how to walk and how to do basic things. So I'm trying to process all this. We're in ICU, um, about to do the treatment, and there's like seven doctors standing around me going, hmm, huh, hmm. And one of them says, let's do a nerve conduction study in her legs just to make sure before we start this. And I remember looking at them going, yeah, I vote for that option. So they do a nerve study and they find that my nerves – are able to receive the appropriate signal and from the mri they're seeing that my brain is able to send the appropriate signal but for some reason it's like the signal was being transmitted and the receivers were going where's the signal but they were just on different planes so then i spent so i spent a week in spokane at sacred heart and then i spent a week in spokane at saint luke's doing physical therapy right alongside people that had just had a stroke or an embolism of some kind, basically doing the same thing that they were doing, which is just relearning how to walk and re- retraining those nerves so to fire again. What was
1: it? It wasn't this Guillain-Barre thing? No.
0: They, they say that it was a, how did, how did they put it? They said it was a conversion disorder. So that for some reason, there was some stress or trigger that triggered my brain with the excess stress that my brain couldn't handle. My brain, instead of just saying, Hey, I'm really stressed, I'm really anxious, it says, Nap, we're just going to quit doing this function. Apparently, it can happen with walking. If people get super stressed, they can go blind, like with conversion disorder. Really? It's just this unexplained chemical, but physical miscommunication.
1: Is it like super rare?
0: I don't know if it's super rare. I mean, it's I guess it's not rare because at St. Luke's where I was at, they have a whole unit for conversion disorder. It's really? not like they see one every day, but
1: So had there had you been under a huge amount of stress or was it, you know, something think, to do with pregnancy? Or? I think
0: the only like huge stress at that point was contemplating, okay, I might have to have major spinal surgery when I'm pregnant. I think I think that was a huge part of it. Um <laughs> I don't want to cast blame or anything, but I think a lot of it was work too. You know, yeah. you're trying to, with a, gosh, what was he, one and a half at that point? A one and a half year old, and then trying to raise him and balance family and work. And, and then you've got your own structural anomalies that you're trying to handle. And yeah.
1: So yeah, what was going on? At, I mean, you say work, <laughs> that means the farm.
0: Right, the farm. What was
1: going on at the uh, at the farm? At oh, what isn't going on?
0: <laughs> with the, well, it was right after the blizzard. So that was all right around the beginning of February. So it was right after that big blizzard freak snowstorm that we had. Right. So we were handling that. Um, a lot of it was a lot. Our farm, so our dairy farm is, how do I correctly phrase this? We are the longest continually run, family run dairy in the Yakima Valley. Mm. 101 years now, maybe it's 102. So I think my husband and I feel this huge pressure to do what we love but also maintain this farm that has lasted for so long. It's yeah. we really like to call it a legacy farm, not that we like to tout ourselves, but um so yeah, I think a lot of uh, the farm itself I think is in a little bit of a transition with the the owners currently um reaching an age where they're I don't think Talking about age or potential retirement is comfortable for anybody. Yeah, for um, sure. So I think it's the situation where we're needing to navigate that, and what happens to the farm because of that. Meanwhile, we're we keep going and we keep doing what we need to do.
1: Does that freak you out?
0: It does. It does. Sometimes it feels like this David and Goliath kind of situation. You know, you feel like you're kind of sitting here going, okay, I really like cows. I really like to milk cows. I really like being a dairy farmer. And then you you look at this, you know, this oncoming wave of, okay, there's societal pressures. Mm-hmm. There's economic pressures. Um, you know, it's do does what I see for the farm jive with what the current owners see for the farm? And how do we navigate this and find a balance with those? And then see, will at our current size, will we be able to survive with everything getting more expensive? And it's a whole host of things.
1: So, <laughs> how does the arrangement work with the owners? And how did you guys, you and your husband, are <laughs> you're both involved with the farm, yes. right? Yes.
0: Yeah. So he is more of the he is more of the handyman. He's okay. not purely a handyman, but he. Right. So if anything breaks, that's usually. If some, one of our employees comes to me and says, hey, this is broken, if it's not a simple plug and go, I call him and he goes and fixes it. He's mm. really technically savvy. I am human resources and then cow records. So mm. basically anything clerical for the farm with the exception of payroll and taxes, that's me. Um, I'd like to get out with the cows more as much as I can. but If you love- do, what
1: do you do with the cows?
0: Um, I move, so we move cows. I help, I basically help guys help train our employees, mm. um, how to understand how a cow sees her world and be able to effectively communicate with them. Mm. Um,
1: you can talk to cows.
0: Well, not talking, <laughs> I mean, you can, I mean, yeah. I call them. So whenever I move cows, like if I'm helping some guy's milk in the barn, I usually call them sis or mama, you know, <laughs> yeah. cause being a mom, I understand, um, but yeah, no, a lot of it is understanding like how she sees, so how she literally sees and how she hears her world and paying attention to those physical cues for her. Because you can move, you know. ask, and it's all about asking a cow how to move. It's You're not telling, you're not demanding. You are asking her, and just by standing there with your hands in your pockets, and if you're just paying attention to how she's using her senses to view her world, you can ask her to do things and she'll do what you would like like her to do move yeah like move forward or move backwards and it's all about applying just your presence next to her if positioned correctly um invokes pressure on her quote-unquote bubble you know every cow has this comfort bubble and if you move... Every human does, too. Yeah, and too. Yeah. Some are larger than others. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
1: Some are a little too small. The, yeah. The close stalkers. Right,
0: right. I know, there, a co- there, I know a couple of those. <laughs> are, there,
1: are there cows that are like close stalkers?
0: Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Some cows are like, hey, I'm going to share my opinion with you. And others are like, nah, you stay over there. We're good.
1: So how did you get to be in this position on this farm? Since it's not your farm you don't own it no no so how did you both you and your husband end up there
0: well my husband's been work if he were here he would probably correct me but i think since he was 10 he was working on the farm i don't know when he started getting paid Mm -hmm. but i know that he (laughs) he started working on the farm you know
1: i know how that goes
0: yeah so he was (laughs) he's been working on the farm since he was a kid and we actually met up at wsu Mm. in pullman and I went to, I grew up in Portland. So mm. in the, I like to call it the concrete suburbs, <laughs> okay. where your neighbor was literally like close talking right next to you. You live that close with each other. Um,
1: so you didn't grow up on a farm?
0: Absolutely not. No. And I never thought I would end up here, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And, so
1: you meet at WSU. Yes. You meet this farmer guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who's now
1: your husband. Yeah. And how does it go from there?
0: Oh, gosh. So we met, we, we knew of each other in our, like, animal science 101 class. We were at the sheep lab, and there's this pen with this one ram, which is a male male sheep, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Um, and so they asked for two volunteers, and he hops in, and I, <laughs> I feel so bad saying this, but he hops in, and I'm like, man, this guy needs help so i just so i just hop in there with him (laughs) i'm like he does you have to understand i had sat in the front of the class for all the lectures he was in the back making wisecracks you know just kind of paying attention and i was like okay i'm gonna go in and help this guy so we get in the pen and i don't know whether you want the pg version or whether you want a little more like scientific analytical version of this (laughs) but i'll anyway so he, the lab director says, you're going to, do you know what you're doing today? And he, and my husband says, no, you haven't told us yet. And that's when I knew I was like, this guy is quick. Like, yeah, like he puts things together really fast in his head. Um, and he said, well, here, take this tape measure. So he gives my husband the tape measure. Meanwhile, this Ram is still standing here. And I'm like, I can see the writing on the wall, like what we're doing and my husband takes a tape measure. He's like, so what are we going to do? And the lab leader says, you're going to measure the reproductive efficiency of this ram by me- measuring his testicular circumference. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we're doing this. And yeah. so my husband, my non-boyfriend at the time, looked at the tape measure and looked at me. And then just without a word, so did you hands like, me you the tape measure. So you didn't even
1: really know each other at all?
0: No, we didn't know each other at all. We knew and, of each other, but we didn't know each other. And
1: here you are about to measure as, yeah. as sheeps together. Yeah, private parts. Yeah.
0: And, and he looks at the tape measure, looks at me, and without a word, just hands it to me. And I'm like, all righty, I guess we're doing this. So he basically then volunteered to just hold the ram, make sure he wasn't going anywhere. And I got on my hands and knees and did the, did the dirty work. And then I think it was either that day or it was the next day that he knew some people that lived on my floor in the dorm. And he brought over a Costco lasagna, and I kind of crashed their party. And then we just started hanging out from then on. And then, gosh, over time, it evolved into he started working at the dairy center at WSU. And then I quickly followed suit and started working there. And then he started living there in the apartment above the parlor. Um, So when I would finish with calf chores, and it was so cold in the winter, I knew I had a place. I was like, okay, I can go upstairs and I can Mm -hmm. cuddle and get warm before my first class. Mm -hmm. So um, there were perks to that.
1: This was before or after you were official?
0: We were dating at the time. We were officially dating. (laughs) It was Facebook official. (laughs) But uh, no, so gosh. So then we worked there together and then we got engaged a year before we graduated. And at that time, we both... I think it was kind of unspoken at first that we were going to come back to the dairy. He Mm. kind of told me after we started meeting, after we started dating, like, hey, my family has a dairy farm, you know. And by that time, I knew that I wanted to be in dairy. I didn't go to WSU thinking that I was going to be in dairy. When I was growing up, I always felt... I always felt more connected with animals than I did with people. Not mm-hmm. that I'm not a people person. I mm-hmm. love people. But I, I just felt like I had a, more, a stronger comfort level with people or with animals, sorry. Mm-hmm. But um, so I knew from early on that I wanted to go to vet school. And my dad and my grandpa and my uncle all went to Oregon State. And I'm, my personality is, oh, well, if you guys are all going to do that, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I just need out. Like, I need to go somewhere else. Yep. And so uh, on an offhand comment, somebody had said, oh, WSU up in Pullman has a great vet school. I'm like, sold. Sign me up. Go. <laughs> and it was the drive up there when I was going to move into the dorms that I realized, like, oh, there's nothing out here. I'm like, what did I do? Like, what? You know, and. But I moved in and I had this, I was so naive in a way. We started classes and I was like, I'm going to work on cats and dogs. And if by all means, that's what you want to do and that's what you want to go to vet school for, awesome, super. WC is a great place for it. But then the, I guess I should have gone the biology route maybe. Because mm, you started I, getting into the science. Yeah, because I we went into animal science. And I think one of the first labs that we did was at the dairy farm there in Pullman. And I I don't know. I just got hooked. So Maybe. when you say
1: the dairy farm, that's WSU's.
0: WSU has a dairy farm, not dairy center. Yep.
1: And so that that's where students run the whole thing, basically. To
0: basically, yeah. It's, learn it's, the trade
1: and try different stuff. And
0: yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a dairy center that WSU has had for oh gosh, I don't know how long, decades. And then the milk from all of the cows at WSU goes to the creamery. There, on campus. So they make so cougar make, gold cheese uh, and the Ferdinand's ice cream and all that good stuff.
1: Somebody hasn't had cougar gold before. Who? You? No, I'm saying oh. if someone has.
0: Oh, if someone hasn't.
1: They need to go out and find themselves. I think you can get, like order it online or something. You
0: can order it online.
1: You got it. You got to try that. Yeah, I stuff wanna, is incredible.
0: I want to say we actually. So the in the dorms you have this dining hall account, and if you have any surplus at the end of the year, it just it goes poof, it goes disappears, or you can use it up. All of a sudden, yep. my my boyfriend at the time, now my now husband, <laughs> comes in. He's like, I bought sixteen cans of Cougar Gold, wow. and we still have them in our fridge, <laughs> like six seven years later. So they age really nice. So yeah, if what's you it, want a can it like, before you leave, yeah, well, you can...
1: <laughs> what's, it, what's it like after it's aged that long? Does it get sharper and sharper?
0: I don't... I think so. I think a little bit. I think it depends on what variety you're putting in there. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, that's in the can. Um, I think... I don't know like a Crimson Fire, which is a more spicy version of the che- one of the cheeses that they make. I don't think it gets spicier. I think it just gets more sharp, but it's really good. It's really good.
1: So... Going way back to the yeah. health stuff. Oh yeah, you had this nerve thing going on. Yeah, they figure out it's this. Now, what was it called again? Like they figure
0: a, out that it's not Guillain-Barré.
1: Right. It was, and a, then
0: it was the conversion disorder. conversion disorder. disorder. Yes. Yeah.
1: Was there any risk to your still in the womb baby at no. that point? Or
0: no. no, that was purely just me. So yeah. what what
1: what were they saying about the pregnancy at that point? The she everything was, was good. She,
0: yeah, she was doing fine. Yeah. And so after spending two weeks up in Spokane, came home and, and they, they said, oh, well, this should never happen again. I'm like, excellent. Great. Cross that off the bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> and so we come home and just get back to work and doing everything. And she was due in July, I think. So basically, so then I went in, fast forward months and months and months, and we end up, our daughter ends up showing up six weeks ahead of schedule. Um, our big thing at that point was that her lungs were enough, well enough developed that she could mm. breathe on her own. And Lord Almighty, did she come out screaming. So that's <laughs> when I knew. I'm like, okay, lungs are good. I don't know what else is wrong. <laughs> the lungs are fine. So, yeah, she was on room air. She didn't need supplemental oxygen at all. Her main hurdle in getting released from the NICU was just learning how to eat. So she she was in a huge rush to get here, and then we spent 44 days up in the NICU. Month and a half,
1: forty-four days yeah, in the it, hospital
0: or jail, depending on how you want to look at it. That is one of the yeah. One what of the was hardest that like?
1: Things. That has to be brutal,
0: brutal, brutal. It's this. It was hard for me, and it was hard for um, my husband too because she just wasn't real. Like she's real to the point where you know you've had your baby to let me hold her for a couple minutes before they had to take her to the NICU. And then I could hold her afterwards, you know. Um, But she just didn't feel real. I mean, you prep your home and you think, oh, the crib's ready. The sheets are on it. Everything's ready to go. And you have your baby. And then you come home and your baby's not here. And you're just sitting here going, wait, wait, where's my baby? You know? And it was hard. So
1: she was in the NICU. Correct. In Tri-Cities, 45 Mm -hmm. minutes away. Mm -hmm. And you were having to come home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would go every day. I'd try to be there for, at so I would take our son to daycare, and that's where he normally went so that I could go to work. I would take him to daycare, drive 45 minutes to go see her, be there for two or three feedings, and then be back in time to pick him up and then come home and then do it all over again, 44 days in a row. Um,
1: Who was covering all your stuff on the farm?
0: My husband. <laughs> It got him out of harvest equipment. He got to be the office lady for a little bit. He liked it. <laughs> but And
1: who took care of the harvest equipment then?
0: Uh, So our dairy is in a unique situation where we dairy, but we also do custom harvesting.
1: Okay. So yeah.
0: we, for our own cows, we harvest a thousand acres, mm. randomly dispersed throughout the area um and it grows corn we grow alfalfa we grow triticale i don't think we grow any other form of grass um but and so we do that we we have so we in spring and in fall we have to harvest our own feed for our own cows milk cows day in day out there's no seasonality in that yeah and then we do custom harvesting for other farms too Mm
1: -hmm. so your daughter was born super early but that wasn't it for 2019 and its health <laughs> issues for you, right? No,
0: no. So
1: it just the punches kept coming.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. The so I, when she came home, I just, I did a few weeks at with I think I was home with our son for two maybe 3 months. He was actually coming to the dairy with me. And I was doing I would actually clear off a bunch of records off my desk and he would sit in his little chair <laughs> on my desk. And talk about, like, I I have a boss. I mean, my boss is my father-in-law because yeah. he's the owner. But talk about somebody, like, staring at you being like, are you going to get your work done today? <laughs> like a two-month-old just kind of doing nothing, staring at you. Um, but he ended up going to daycare so I could work full-time. And so with our daughter being a technically a preemie, um, a healthy preemie, but a preemie, I stayed home with her for a few weeks. And then I was like, I need to get back to work. I can't do this. I love you, but I need to get back to the cows so then we went back to work, and I started having a lot of pain that I had had after our son was born. A lot of the nerve pain and a lot of pain, like right in my hip. Um, and I was like, "Great, this pain is back." And at going backwards, after my son was born, they found that my lowest lumbar vertebrae is compressing the disc, the inner intervertebral disc, kind of the spongy cushion that it shares with my sacrum and so that disc was pushing on one my sciatic nerve causes the sciatica yeah. so not I had, a nice thing if no. anybody's experienced yeah that kind no of pain. it's like fire just running through your legs and so i had a epidural steroid injection for that which mm. relieved the pain and mm. then i got pregnant and then with li- the limited real estate of the human body everything <laughs> kind of <laughs> everything kind of went okay we're going to stay in this position because we have to carry a baby you know Um, so then when our daughter was born, everything had more room to relax and loosen. And so then all that pain started coming back. So I had another x-ray done thinking that we would have another injection only to find out that my scoliosis has gotten a lot worse, which opened a whole other host of
1: issues. Now scoliosis, that's... (laughs) That's something you find out you have when you're a kid, right? If I remember, yeah. I was, I think it was like fifth grade, they were doing scoliosis screening. Yeah. And this see, awkward never... thing where you had to like take your shirt off and they had to look at your back. and <laughs> Yeah. I think like, they oh, gathered okay.
0: everybody up in the gym for that. Yeah. And they're like, hey, everybody, you know, like obviously boys with boys and girls yeah. with girls. But like, I had been complaining of really low kind of back pain. Usually it's not symptomatic. And you start noticing a difference in shoulder height or a difference in, you know, where your waist falls compared to your left side versus your right side. And if you bend over, typically you have what they call a rib hump, which is, so scoliosis is really a three-dimensional problem. It's where your, the vertebrae that make up your spine curve,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then they also twist and mm. rotate. So it's a three-dimensional issue. And the rib hump comes from the third dimension, which is the twisting of your vertebrae. So as your vertebrae twist off-center, they rotate and twist your rib cage off-center, which makes it look like a a hump on your one side. Um, Mine. So we found out when I was in sixth grade, and we tried at that time the curves were not bad enough that they wanted to do surgery right away. So I wore this rigid torso brace for all summer still insisted on doing horse camp. So I was riding horses while wearing this rigid torso plastic brace. But despite all that, my curves kept getting worse. Um, And so that's when they said, you know, you're going to need surgery.
1: What was that like at 12 years old to have that?
0: I, you know, I was having, I was actually coincidentally having this discussion with my mom last night Mm. as I'm prepping for this next surgery. Um, I feel like, and there, I don't know how much you can really tell a 12-year-old at that point. You don't want to keep them completely blind from yeah. the situation because it's their body and they have a right to know. Um, but I remember not really getting, I remember thinking I'm getting filtered answers, mm. you know, to my questions because they don't want to scare me. And I'm like, well, darn it, you know.
1: Were you scared? Was there any sort of fear? I man. I, I
0: think I think there was. I think I think it was the unknown. yeah, you know In a, in a way, being naive and not knowing what it was going to be like on the other side was kind of a blessing too, you know totally. Um, I think I think at first, I remember being in the car with my mom when they diagnosed me and we were headed home. Um, cause I hadn't been to a phys, like my pediatrician for years cause I was so healthy. And that's, I think my one, my parents' one big regret is they were like, we should have been taking you in, even though you weren't sick, you know, we should have been taking you in for yearly checks. It just wasn't something they thought of. But I remember being in the car when we were first, di- when I was first diagnosed and saying to my mom, like, what are all the kids are going to make fun of me?
1: That was the second thing I was thinking about. Was first being scared about it, and secondly, I remember being so painfully insecure at that time in my life. Going into middle school, brutal.
0: Leaving sixth grade. I mean, this was at a time where I was leaving elementary school Mm -hmm. and going into middle school, and I was like, yeah. And then I, and then all of a sudden, this happens, and I'm like, oh wait, you know, because my. when you see these subtle differences that scoliosis gives, unless it's really severe and really progressive, really fast, it's hard to notice unless mm. you know what you're looking for. It's hard to notice. Um, so it was one of those situations where I'm sure looking back on it, once I knew what that I had it and I stared at myself in the mirror, I'm like, Oh, this is so obvious. You know, everybody's going to see it. Right, you know? Cause
1: you're keyed in on it.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, But yeah, I mean, like I I was talking with my mom last night in gearing up for this next surgery. I was thinking like, do you remember me being scared at all that morning going into it? She's like, no, you were really quiet. You were just kind of like, okay, we got to do this. There's no really, I mean, there was an option not to do it, but for my long-term health, there was no option. And in surgery, they are, I don't know if this is a correct term, but filet would be a good would be a good term. I mean, the, my scar runs from, depending on where your curve is, it's, it runs from the base of, your, base of my neck to about the middle, about to where my waist is. And they basically open and remove part of the bony projections on your individual vertebrae to make room for these rods, these titanium rods that stretch from, like I said, the base of my neck to about my waist. And they put screws in your vertebrae with hooks. And then it's so medieval describing this, yeah. but um, have these rods attached to these hooks to base force your spine to straighten. Hmm. And then they took part of my iliac crest, which is the top portion of your hip, um, made kind of this kind of paste or jelly, and then basically stuffed it in between all those vertebrae really to encourage those bones to fuse together into one long, column of bone, essentially. Mm. So by the end of that, I think the that surgery was 10, 10, 11 hours long, and I was 2 inches taller getting wheeled out as opposed to going in. Wow. And then between 2003 and 2019, my lumbar, so the curve unfused beneath my current hardware, has gone from 20 to 40. Mm. So we're back to a little back to where we started, maybe a little worse.
1: <laughs> and that's what's been causing you yeah. so much pain. Yeah. What's the pain like?
0: Oh gosh. It depends. I mean the, the sciatica is constant with more aggravated kind of activity. So like bucking hay and, you know, moving cows and milking cows, it it I know that I'm going to hurt later, you know. Um
1: like, are your legs feeling like they're on fire right now, sitting here? Oh talking? yeah, yep, really? yeah.
0: And it's a different kind of pain sitting versus standing, or yeah. standing versus walking. Essentially, the only pain-free like um, avenue that I have is laying down, watching Netflix.
1: <laughs> so, well, at least there's that. Yeah, there's that. But seriously, so, like, yeah. you're a pretty happy person most of the time. When I've seen you, <laughs> if I yeah. was in pain all the time, you wouldn't want to talk to me because I would be so just grumpy and angry. Oh, all my wick,
0: my wick is short, my wick. And that right. was kind of one of our reasons for doing the surgery. Now. Um, my husband was like, this is not long-term, not sustainable. Mm. You know, it's the pain already limits me and what I physically can do. Um, and just, you know, when you're in pain, you're crabby. You're just not happy. I mean, you're happy, but it's your tolerance for different things gets shorter and shorter. And so it, at this point, It's a self-preservation technique. Mm -hmm. We know that unless this new fusion happens, my spine will continue to do wild and wonky things come heck or high water, you know? I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. And so if I know it's only going to get worse, why not go through three or four months of trial and tribulation to solve yeah. the problem once and for all.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like yeah. how bad is it going to be?
0: I'm hoping that it'll, it'll be, the pain will be less than the first time. I remember waking up delirious from pain meds the first time screaming at my parents, take him out, take them out, take him out. Cause you are, it's like you're being stretched. Your body is forced to being stretched. Um, and so I'm hoping that it is better this time. I would hope that pain mitigation in hospitals has come a long way in 16, 17 years. Um, but yeah, it's going to be 3 around three to four months of no bending, lifting, or twisting. So anything, you know, as far down, standing up or sitting down as far as I can reach versus as far as I, in both directions, that's what I'm going to be limited to, which means no picking up my baby off the floor. Um, no dishwasher to hold her at all i'll be able to hold her if somebody gives her to me (laughs) Mm. i can i'll basically sit here and say hey could you hand me my baby please which will be hard but i would rather do this when the kids won't remember and um you know so that when they get older and they want me to teach them soccer or swimming or anything like that that i'll have limitations but i'll be pain-free
1: are there risks going into the surgery
0: oh for sure for sure. So this, so unlike my first surgery, this surgery will involve removing um, the cushion, like the gel, like cushiony discs between each vertebrae. And so to do that, they have to go through the front, so anterior, through my belly. Mm. The risk with that is that your aorta and your vena cava, the two largest veins and arteries in your body, lay right on top of your spine, right in that area. So there's a a big risk of you know, you can bleed out and you can die. Like,
1: like if they make a wrong move and...
0: If somebody had one too many cups of coffee that morning and they get a little jittery and, <laughs> you know... Um, you
1: laugh, but that's that's scary. What
0: can you do, though? What can you do? I mean, you can... I, I, I'm I trying to look at this. I I am a firm believer that your attitude going into something like that is a huge determining factor for what your success is afterwards. If I go into this thinking my life is over, I'll never be able to do this and do that, then I'm going to come out a victim. And I choose not to be a victim. Will I have limitations? Yeah. Are they insurmountable? Well I'm I'm pretty sure I won't be able to paint my toenails for the rest of my life, but really? I, yeah. I mean all of your all of my bending because I will be extending that metal in my back all the way down to my pelvis and then six-inch screws in each side of my pelvis to preserve my hips. I, my bending will be limited to basically a deadlift. Mm. I will be deadlifting everything for the rest of my life.
1: What's that going to mean for the farm and, and what you do on the farm?
0: <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, a lot of my, a lot of my job right now is being behind a desk, so I don't think it'll change that aspect as much. I think I will have more of a self, like we were talking about bubbles. I think I'll have a bigger bubble around myself as far as, okay, if this, you know, I need to protect myself in these certain situations. Like Like if you're out with the cows. Yeah, if I'm out with the cows or if I'm in a pen with cows, I can't, I probably won't be letting myself shimmy between a cow and a fence really fast. You know, Mm -hmm. just, I I need to protect (laughs) what I've worked so hard to have. I, my husband and I call, cows they're like giant cats <laughs> they're really really curious but they're it's an interest cows are so interesting because they're they're curious yet they're timid um it i just love cows i'm such a nerd I'm, i just love cows
1: when did you realize that that you loved cows oh, that man. you were a dairy farmer here a kid who grew up in the suburbs of portland
0: oh man i ooh it have to be it it has to be when I when we first visited the dairy farm at WSU. My first dairy, very vivid dairy memory was we would always go to church on Sunday and then we'd go grocery shopping and it was like a block away. <clears throat> so we'd go and get our groceries and I always knew when we were getting to the dairy aisle, not because I saw the milk case, you know, in the, the dairy section, but above the milk case, there was this mural of these green hills and this red barn and a nice, sunshiny sky, which is awesome, and these cows. And then there were these cow butts above the milk case, and the tails would wag. And so my first very vivid dairy <laughs> memory was, this is where milk comes from. This is, you know, yep. yeah, the cows are right there, and it just plucks, you know, as a five-year-old or whatever. Yep. You're like, this is where milk comes from. Yeah, And it's just so funny to think that, oh, man, do I have to admit how old I am? <laughs> However many years later that i'm on the other side of i went from consumer to producer and consumer mm-hmm. so it's awesome
1: you see that you doing this for the rest of your life
0: yeah lord willing you know it's hard it's hard right now there's a lot of a lot of pressures from a lot of different angles that make it hard
1: so how many cows do you guys have
0: right now we're milk so we milk about 850 Mm-hmm. Um, We have right around 150 dry cows, so cows that are about two months away from calving. We give them kind of a two-month break from producing milk just to let them recharge and reboot their batteries and that kind of stuff. Um, Milk 850, 150 are dry um, as far as replacements. So our herd of heifers, so any, any calf that's an hour old, Up to a heifer who isn't producing milk yet that's just about to have her first baby. We have probably about a thousand head. It's a year round, day in, day out, keep on keeping on kind of system. So,
1: what about your kids? Will you, if things continue to go? Yeah. I would say well, but yeah, I know how the good days and bad days all the time with farming, if things continue to go forward with the farm. Are you going to encourage them to do that?
0: Oh, for sure. I, for sure. I don't, I don't think that my husband had any outright pressure to come back to the farm. I think my, my both of my in-laws made it very clear to him, like, we want you to go to school. We want you to discover what your calling is. And if it happens to be the farm, then great, come back, you know? Um, but I think he, for himself, felt a very strong pull to come back to the farm
1: so he's passionate about it.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think with our kids, um we haven't really talked about that. We're just trying to survive toddlerhood. <laughs> it's, I hear that. Yeah, that is a day in, day out. I have Keep toddlers. on keeping on. Yeah. It's crazy. But no, I we would definitely I think our goal with our kids is to encourage hard work. Um and I feel like going through that is one of the huge differences i see in my husband and i he grew up working i did not mm. um i my i got my first job when i was 15 he he had already been working for 5 years he was already saving up money for his first car mm. you know there's just regional and um whatever for whatever reason differences in how kids are raised and i w- i i I'm so thankful for how I was raised with my parents, but in a way, I wish I could do it all over as an ag kid. There's just such a hard working, down to earth work ethic that I admire. And that even though I did not grow up an ag kid, I strive to have that for myself and for my children. Um, It's not like you go to school, you come home and you work till 11 o'clock at night, and then you go to bed and then you go to school. And, you know, there's, I think you gain a lot. I think you gain a lot of, okay, I'm, I am earning my way. It's not being given to me. And that's not to say that non-ag, I'm not what, I'm not trying to say that non-ag kids get things handed to them, but there you value things so much differently when you know the work that you put into it. It's like in going to college, my husband had to pay for 50% of his college tuition. So he was working. Mm -hmm. for me um my parents had saved some funds ever since i was born and we used those and then we took out loans so then i had student loans to pay Mm -hmm. um looking back on it i wish i would have paid for part of my way through school Mm -hmm. because i i don't feel like in the mornings when i had a six o'clock class i was like ah i can catch up on it later no big deal whereas my husband he's like no gosh darn it I'm paying for 50% of my education. Like I need to go to that class. So I think there's a huge value in working for what you have. Um, I wouldn't underestimate it or undervalue it for anything. Not at all.
1: So you don't long to move back to the city?
0: No. And, I'm, and I know that it is for, I mean, a lot of people are drawn to it. I. It's interesting to see Portland now. I grew up in Portland. It's interesting to see Portland now from this perspective. We we drive through the gorge to go visit my parents. They still live in Portland. We drive through the gorge. We start getting a little white-knuckled because we know the traffic's coming. <laughs> and we're like, there's so many people. There's so many cars. You know, and it's – I I don't know. I like having my space, my wide-open space. And it's just so – I feel like I can breathe here. <laughs> Meanwhile, my, my dad, when I told him when I was back in school, my dad – I was like, you're gonna you're gonna do what? He's like, I I raised you in Portland. Like, what happened? Like, why are you why? And and I'm just like, I don't know. I'm just following what I feel is right. Like, and this is what I love. And he's like, I just don't get it. I don't understand. What did I do wrong? And I'm just sitting here going, I don't think you did anything wrong. I think we're fine, you know.
1: So were they not supportive when you decided you wanted to? I think you marry didn't. this dairy farm kid <laughs> and move to the country?
0: I think they didn't understand. I think they've always been supportive, but they didn't understand.
1: Well, thank you for opening up and sharing yeah. a bit of your story. Good luck to you, too, with, you. with the whole surgery thing.
0: Thanks. Thanks. We're going to take it as it comes, and it can only get better. So.
1: And hopefully it's it goes smoothly, and oh, yeah. the result is you heal up and and you have as much movement as possible and yeah. you don't have to worry about these things anymore. Yeah. I
0: right? I might have gotten myself out of buck and hay for the rest of my life, but yes. I'll still be there. This is the Real Food Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food.
1: Jessica is just so tough. Seriously, I, I couldn't do what she does. And I am really inspired by her awesome attitude with everything she's had to deal with. Thank you for joining us this week. And make sure to subscribe to Real Food, Real People on whatever platform you prefer to get your podcasts. Also, check out realfoodrealpeople.org. And feel free to reach me anytime by email, dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org.
0: The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Safe Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at safefamilyfarming.org.